morning, everybody. So we'll be in Isaiah 61 today. Am I too loud or is this right? Is this okay? So what is the most valuable thing you've ever held in your hands? My babies. I knew that was going to be the first answer. What is the second most valuable thing you've ever held in your hands? All right, we have a vote for the. Got a, got a baby in one hand, a cheesecake in the other, and, and Daddy has a Bible in his hip pocket. What is the third most valuable thing you've ever held in your hands? Grandchildren. Oh, that doesn't count. That's, your, that's still a baby. What else? Oh, wow. Oh, okay. Cindy. Cindy says a thousand dollar bill. What is the most valuable thing you've ever held? Engagement ring. Um, what? Somebody else's life in your hands. Wow. Very valuable. Exactly. Have you ever been given something to hold, a physical thing, of course, and it kind of made you nervous to hold it? And you just kind of wanted to give it, to just <laughs> give it back in, in good shape when you were done with it. I kind of feel like that about this chapter. It's, it's ours to hold, and I just I hope we can, I hope we can do it justice. I, I, hope, I hope the Holy Spirit just does a good work in us as we look at this chapter, because this is so rich, and uh, Daddy's teaching next week, so whatever I, I miss, he can go over again. As we, as we looked at chapter 60, I'll call your attention back to verse 21. It says, then all your people will be righteous. We talked about the then, when everything is made right. And chapter 60 talked about what's going to happen in the end and why. So next to your chapter heading in, on 60, you could put the end and, and, and why. And the answer is, it's the glory of the Lord. It's all for the glory of the Lord. In fact, everything we've done, everything that God's done, really, is for his glory. Any, uh, anybody with a Presbyterian background? Westminster Catechism, number one, is what? What'd you say? The Westminster Catechism. Oh. The chief end of man... To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Yes. That's number one. That's not bad. We, we could learn a, a few things from the Westminster Catechism. 
It's all for God's glory. Chapter 61 says what's going to happen in the end and who. What's going to happen and who. So, as we look at 61, I want to call attention to a little bit of an outline so that you can kind of watch the flow of things. Verse 1 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. So we have a speaker saying that that the Spirit of God is upon them. In verse 8, it says, For I, the Lord, love justice. So we have a different speaker here. In verse 10, It says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. So God's not speaking in verse 10 like he was in verse 8. We have either a different speaker, either a third speaker, or we have the same speaker that was in verse 1 picking it back up again. So as we we flow through this chapter, just kind of pay attention to, to who's talking. Verse number 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Let me call your attention to verse 2 to begin with. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. This this phrasing refers back to Leviticus 25. I don't know what number that is, but you guys know how to look up things. Leviticus 25. You can turn there. While you're turning... Some of you who grew up with parents who like to listen to uh, southern gospel music, like I did, if you were getting dressed on Sunday morning, you might have the TV tuned to one of several things. You might see Rex Humbard. You might have seen Oral Roberts. Or you might have heard the southern gospel jubilee which was all the gospel singers, right? All the, the Happy Goodmans and the, the Florida Boys and all these old gospel singers, right? The gospel jubilee. What is jubilee? Well, Leviticus tells us the jubilee. So look in verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 25 of Leviticus. It says, The Lord then spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I will give you, then the land shall have a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its crop. But during the seventh year the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. So, Six years work, seven on the seventh, and we're not going to read the whole thing, but it says you don't have to work on the seventh. God's going to work for you. You can eat from the land's going to be, provide what you need. 
We're going to let things rest. If you turn over, or you may not need to turn, but in, in verse 8, it says, you are also to count off seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, so that you have the time of seven Sabbaths of years, namely 49 years. You shall then sound a ram's horn abroad on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound a horn all through the land, and you shall thus consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. And each of you shall return to his own property, and each of you shall return to its own land. Verse 11, you shall have the 50th year as a jubilee. You shall not sow nor reap, etc., etc. Verse 12, it shall be holy to you. Verse 13, on this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his own property. And it goes on and gives you all the rules. Basically, it says, um, if you have owned something, that maybe you bought from someone else, on the 50th year, you give it back. If anybody owes you anything, you forgive it. Everything gets reset. It's a year of jubilee. It's to celebrate. It's to celebrate. That's what, if we flip back to Isaiah 61, this favorable year of the Lord, it's talking about the year of jubilee. Can you imagine looking forward to the year of Jubilee? Everything would have been amazing looking forward to that year. Well, that year of Jubilee, you know, so much in the Old Testament is, is, is a, a glimpse of what's going to be down the road. Well, that was just a glimpse of what's going to be down the road. It says to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So let's look back. Now that we know where we're heading, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. It's hard not to listen to this with Old Testament ears with just Old Testament ears. But if this was the prophet talking in its original form, it, it makes sense. The prophet is saying, God has anointed me for a special message to, to tell you what's to come. Turn to Luke. chapter 4. The cool thing about this chapter 61 is you can make an argument that it really pulls the whole Bible together. It, it tells you, the, it, it, it shows you how the pieces are arranged. Luke chapter 4. Let's look at verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, as was his custom. He entered into the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. Now, 
The tradition would have been that you are reading the Bible through, or the, in those days it would have been uh, the law and the prophets. So here they are in the prophet Isaiah, and in turn the men would have taken turns each week to read from the next place in the scroll. What so happens that this was Jesus' day. Verse 15, he began teaching in the synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered in the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Verse 20 says, And he closed the book. He closed the book. Turn back to Isaiah 61. Look at verse 2. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus stopped where it says to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He closed the book. This, the day of vengeance of our God, that wasn't going to happen in this phase of his life and ministry. He said, this is what I'm here for. He's going to, in effect, open the book one day. On the second coming, he tells you in the first verse in a piece what he came to do on his first coming. And beginning in the latter part of verse 2, he's going to tell us what he's going to do in the second coming. What's he going to do? And on the, the day of vengeance of our God, in other words, there's going to be some, some accounts settled at that time. To comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. I think it's King James that has the phrase, he'll give you beauty for ashes. That's what is going to happen. In, in lesser ways, even today, God's still God. This is still what he's about. He's still about giving beauty for ashes, turning mourning into gladness but on that in that day it'll be 
fully revealed. Verse 4, then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations. They will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. And the strangers will stand and pasture your flocks, and foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. But you will be called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion. Instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. Much of chapter 60 was about the, the connection between Israel and the nations and nations recognizing in Israel uh, the reality of God and, and, and just seeing it all for, for how it was always supposed to be. Uh, here we have... Um, another another picture, seeing the same event from a different angle that the nations are going to be flocking to you. They're going to be serving you. All those times when you were persecuted, now the shoe is going to be on the other foot, so to speak. This is talking about the millennium. So we've talked about way back into Leviticus. And we talked about what's happening here. We're talking about what happened when Jesus came the first time, and now we're talking about when Jesus comes the second time and what it's going to be like in the millennium. And this whole this whole time, we've been back and forth, uh, a picture of, of what's to come. Now, verse 8. God says, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery in the burnt offering. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Then their offspring will be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them will recognize them, because, because they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed. In, in Ezekiel 37.24, it says, My servant David will be king over them, and they will have one shepherd... They will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes. They will live on the land. David, my servant, will be their prince forever. This is the new and better David. This is Jesus that he's talking about. Verse 26, and I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. This is a picture of how it's going to be one day. Verse 10, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels, as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes the things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. I'm not sure who the speaker is here, but anyone who is saved by God can say these things. Anyone who has been saved can say these things. He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. So many times we talk about the fact that we don't feel very righteous, but we see it that the righteousness of Christ 
gets accounted to us. It gets imputed to us, to use a theologic term. This says it really clearly. We are wrapped in that righteousness. So that robe, it covers. It covers it all. So we literally put on the righteousness of Christ. As I was thinking about this, I started thinking about this connection where Jesus really saw himself in Isaiah 61. As he started his ministry, and we know that right after that, as he was teaching, what, what, what did we see in his ministry? We looked at this in Mark. He went around and he was healing people. He was doing those things that he said. I'm going to proclaim release. I'm going to give sight to the blind, etc., etc. Look quickly over to Acts chapter 4. I'm sorry, chapter 3. The context is uh, Peter and John. It's, it's after Pentecost. They've received the Holy Spirit. Uh, Peter has preached his wonderful sermon. Uh, thousands of people have come to know the Lord for the very first time. They are, the scales are falling from the eyes. People are starting to see things in a different way. And in the first ten verses there of chapter 3, we hear how uh, Peter... Uh, heals uh, a guy who, who can't walk there at, at the temple and, and he gets healed and, and in verse 11 he says and while he was clinging to Peter and John that is the guy that just got healed the people ran together and when Peter saw this he replied to the people men of Israel why do you marvel at this or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we made him walk and he goes through and he says it's Jesus the guy that you just put to death, the one that you can't find now, the one that rose again, it was him. It was God's power that did this. And he says in verse 19, Repent therefore and return that your sins may be wiped away in order that times a refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. This jubilee, the millennium, those are times of refreshing, times of restoration. And Peter is saying, we can get some of that now. We can get this time of refreshing now. And look at what he says in these coming verses. And it looks back, in my view, to this period of time in Isaiah. It says in verse 20 um, that he can send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke about by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. In other words, Jesus, in verse 21, it says, Jesus had to go back to heaven. Heaven must receive him until the period of restoration of all things. That's the millennium. That's when Jesus comes. In essence, when he opens up the book and he finishes out the rest of those verses in Isaiah. That's when it's all going to be right. 
ultimately. But I asked the question last time, is it all about waiting until then? It wasn't for Peter. It wasn't for that guy on the steps of the temple. He didn't have to wait. He didn't have to wait. And there is nothing that Peter had then that we can't have today. Not a thing. It's the same Holy Spirit. There have always been charlatans for the gospel or around the gospel. Even in Jesus' day, there were fakers. But in our, in our efforts to stick to the word, and I certainly applaud that, have we de-emphasized some things? You know, God bless some of our evangelical friends in the faith who are bold enough to talk about healing still happening today. Who are much closer to where Peter was on the steps of the temple than the average Baptist is. We don't really know how to handle that, right? We say God can heal, but if you've ever heard a Pentecostal pray for healing, it's different than how we pray for healing. I'm convicted by that. So as we think about Isaiah and the one that was anointed, and the one that was anointed to bring good news and to release the captives and all that, and Jesus said, this day, it's happening. And Peter said, it's happened. The rules of the game that were going on then are still the ones that we're going by. The rules haven't changed yet. They won't change again until Jesus comes back. I want us to work that out as, as the Holy Spirit leads to see how can we, how can we get here again? all I got. We better pray. Father, I thank you for your word, that it is so precious that we could do right by it. I pray that your Holy Spirit can bring us to the point where, where we can have the fullness of what Christ intended us to have between now and the real Jubilee. Guide us Keep us on track, Lord. Be patient with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody.